with breaking news. In a major escalation in tensions between the U.S. and Iran, the top Iranian general has been killed in an airstrike while leaving the Baghdad airport. The Pentagon confirmed the U.S. military carried out the attack. Qasem Soleimani was one of the most powerful figures in the Middle East and had been the top military man in Iran for more than 20 years. This attack comes after Iranian-backed groups breached the U.S. embassy in Baghdad just two days ago. We now turn to ABC's Kara Phillips, who's with President Trump in West Palm Beach, Florida. Kara. When reports of the airstrike at the Baghdad airport broke tonight, there was one question on everyone's mind. Was the United States responsible? Well, the president was cryptic. He responded with only a picture, tweeting out the image of the American flag. Breaking news just minutes ago from Iran, what the military there is now admitting about that downed Ukrainian plane. Good evening, Leland. Evening, Shannon, to you. And we're learning a lot more about that operation from the beginning to the end that resulted in the death of Qasem Soleimani. It went far beyond a drone strike and included U.S. Army special operations soldiers on the ground that actually followed his convoy. Half a mile behind when the missile from the Reaper drone hit, they were on the scene within a minute or two. Immediately following the drone strike, they did what in the business is called a bomb damage assessment and took pictures of the scene, along with confirming that the drone got the right car and Soleimani was dead. Many of the pictures we have obtained include graphic and close-up pictures of the Iranian general's body. We're not going to show you those tonight. They're simply too gruesome. He is missing limbs and is grossly disfigured. A source who both served in Iraq and saw the pictures noted that Soleimani died in much the same way the Americans he killed died. Dave Nielsen, how's it going, brother? Hey, John. It's going really good. Thanks. Good to talk to you again. Yeah, it's been a while. It's been a couple of years um, since we last podcasted. Um, I think it was like 2019, maybe. Yeah, I remember. By the house I lived in, it was a couple of houses back, so you know how that goes. Ah, right, right. Yeah, yeah. And um, I can't remember if it was before I went to Israel or after. Oh, yeah. I remember... It was somewhere right in there because I remember you talking about it now that you say that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, man. So how's everything, man? How's, uh, you know, how have things been going? How's the uh, the podcast going? It's good. It's a little uh, daunting at first, as you I'm sure you know, but it's up and going. So um, it's really fun. It's like, you know, people are still like, so you're going to get a job? <laughs> and we're like, this is a job, man. Like, I got so many questions for you, for, you know, later. But, yeah, it's, yeah, it's yeah. a good thing. Where did you go in Israel? Um, so I, when I arrived, I stayed in, um, in Tel Aviv for a couple nights. But basically what I did was, like, each day I would take some kind of guided tour somewhere. Uh-huh. Um, so uh, where did we go? Um, I mean, I, I was all over. Uh, I went to the the northern border near um, 
near Lebanon. The border with Lebanon is kind of like some cool stuff to see in that area. Then I went to uh, Haifa. Um, uh, hold on. And then uh, I went to Jerusalem. I stayed there for a couple nights. Uh, but from Jerusalem, I visited the Dead Sea, uh, Masada, Jericho, um, a couple different places. And then uh, I also spent three nights in Jordan um, out in the desert. So that was pretty fun. Yeah. And that's like my exact trip, except I didn't go actually to Masada. I drove by it. But um, yeah, up in the north in the Druze area there, that's where I lived for a couple months. Mm. Yeah. Good food, huh? Oh, yeah, man. The food is amazing. And like <laughs> I went to, uh, so when I was in Tel Aviv each night, um, I would have dinner at a different spot in uh, Jaffa. Uh-huh. Uh, and uh, and I guess Jaffa is a, a is mostly a sort of Arab Palestinian kind of part of Tel Aviv. Yeah. And um, so I went to this one restaurant that I guess is like the traditional uh, sort of Arab Palestinian style food, and like they bring you so much food right. before you even get to your entree. Like I was stuffed by the time like my my actual <laughs> dinner came out. Um, yeah. But yeah, it was just a phenomenal experience. Um, yeah. Eat so know, much hummus, you can't even eat the main dish. Yeah, so yeah. Good. And it kind of messes you up because, like, I don't want hummus if it's not that level now. You know what I mean? Right. Like, like, oh yeah, yeah. There's no coming back and getting it out of that grocery store. No way. Yeah, it's it's just like it doesn't even compare. Right. Um, but uh, okay, so then when you, when you were in Israel, you, you were there. Uh, kind of for work right yeah it was uh gosh the most coolest trip i ever got paid for 2010 and we were like uh in the unit we we tried it was like a trial course like let's hire some israelis to teach us language so we did and we um they came over here for about six months and then we went over there and uh it was great we stayed right around yafa like you're saying um Tel Aviv, Yaffa, and then went up and lived with some families, some Druze families in the north, and that's, you know, that was the immersion, like, that's some real immersion there. And so the, the Druze, um, they're, are they, they're not Jewish, are they? So they're interesting, they're Arab people that are Jewish citizens, but they're not Jews or Muslims or Christians, it's like a mix of <laughs> like this secretive religion that formed about a thousand years ago in order for them for people to just stay alive well that's very interesting yeah but they're really good people but they, they've been in that region for a long time right they have and there's uh, a bunch of them in the united states like uh you know Tabor, michigan and they have parts where they all congregate um they're all around the world but they're really really cool people well, that's pretty fascinating. Yeah. All right. So you, um, you know, a, a lot of guys, I would say most, uh, from my understanding and people I talk to and, and people I'm friends with, like guys get out of the military and, and some kind of go to, you know, sort of a regular nine to five life or, you know, some go into business. A lot of guys end up in like a tactical sort of security space, maybe even contracting, um, yeah. But you went a completely different route, um, <laughs> and uh, it's it's really fascinating. You know, you were at the 
the sort of highest level of, of special operations, um, you know, in the army. Uh, and you, you have a bunch of deployments, uh, and then you got out and you got a degree in theology, uh, which is fascinating. Uh, so were you always like, uh, religious and sort of drawn to that or did that come later? Good question. I, I wasn't brought up religious at all or going to church really at all. I mean, church was the weirdest thing as a kid. We went Christmas and Easter maybe, and just didn't get it all, but there was something pulling me like you know, a voice. And so that was always there. And, you know, I prayed on my own during the wars and stuff. And when I got out, I was just an absolute mess. Um, divorce, two divorces back to back in like three years with kids and both. And so I was just, I mean, I had to get like, be able to stay alive first. So once I did that, I started school about five years ago, theology degree. And then I got about halfway through my MDiv with the focus on language. I love Greek and Hebrew. And uh, I was asked by Antoine Murchison, my friend, to start coaching. He played for Clemson in um, like 2007, and, and I was like, uh, I don't know anything about football. And he said, yes, you do. <laughs> Trust me. And come on and coach. So I did. And I've done that for a few years. Um, and then I'm taking a break now for to do this because, um, yeah, I mean, this is what it's all sort of been leading toward. And this being like, I just realized like I literally put my journal, my war journals in a box and why, you know what I mean? Like there's going to be some special day where I break them out and tell everybody like, no, man, get them out. I just, you know, I had to get healthy enough to get to where I get them out. So, um, I just got my life back slowly. I have a, you know, I've been with a woman now for eight years and the kids are settled in and everything's okay. And, um, reflecting back now, like I just, time goes by quick, but I just, just now, like, what have I, I've been retired 10 years, almost 10 years. <laughs> mm. So it's all, you know, kind of old, but it's also still really fresh. There's lots of stuff that hasn't come out from a lot of people. And, um, whew, yeah, I mean, you know, more than me, I've, but yeah, here I am. <laughs> okay. So, uh, how long were you in the army total? Total, uh, somewhere about 15 and a half years. I was in 89 to 92, first range of battalion. Got out for almost 10 years back in in 02, and then retired in 2014. So medically retired 15 years. Okay. And then, um, so when you went back in, uh, did you you went straight back into the Ranger Regiment? Yeah, barely. Like it was weird. I was trying to get back in, and I had had uh, a spinal fusion. And there's a you know stipulation there, like if you've had the surgery, you can't be combat arms. And I said I can do it. You know, I had walked the 700 miles from uh, Fort Benning to DC to protest the Black Beret thing in 2000, and that's actually what finally I just showed uh, somebody at the MEP station the. Um, that newspaper, like the front page of the Washington Times, I said, this is me. And she was like, oh, my gosh. She cut me orders right back in. And because for like a year they were trying to, you know, get me to be, be a cook or, you know, mechanic. Nothing wrong with that. But that wasn't what I was called to do. So I persisted, got back in, went straight back to 175. 
Okay, and you stayed there for a few years, right? Or like a year or something? Uh, yeah, about between two and a half, three. And it's funny, I, I just showed up there. So like I, I get orders straight there after almost 10 years out. You're supposed to have to go back through basic training, but I didn't have to. So I get there, they're on leave, you know, so I settle in. I put my wall locker all together like we used to back, you know, in 89. And um, these guys come back from leave and they, you know, the rear D guy put me in snipers. So I was all happy. So I'm in the sniper platoon and they, everybody shows up Monday morning after leave and uh, for, they're doing, you know, roll or whatever. And they're Nielsen. They're like, who the F is Nielsen? I'm like, hey, like I'm just <laughs> in their platoon. Like, hey, guys. You know, and they're like, who's this old bastard? So we got to know each other. <laughs> <laughs> and but you were a sniper. You were you went through sniper school uh, before you got out. No, I wasn't. Um, nope. I was a machine guy. I was a weapon squad the whole time. Like BCO 175 weapons, second platoon. That was it. Yeah. So I think because I'd done that Black Bray walk, the, it was old Sergeant Major Turner. Uh, he was, he knew me from, he was like an E6 when I was an E5 when I got out. He's like, uh, Nielsen, how'd you like to go to snipers? I'm like, um, yes. Yeah. So, <laughs> so I went to Sodic right after that. Yeah. Okay. And Sodic is the sniper school? Yeah. Special operations target interdiction. It's like mostly SF, but some Rangers go. Okay. Okay. Nice. Um, okay. So then you spent, uh, you know, a few years there and, yeah. um, did you? There. Sorry. No, no. I was just gonna ask. Like, were you always thinking about going to a tier one unit, or like, did that come up? How did that come up? Sort of, but I also like I thought I dreamed about it when I was out. You know, that whole time I was like, man, I should have tried out for Delta, but I'm not. It wouldn't take me. So when I was back in the Rangers, we went to Iraq. We went to Afghanistan, went to Iraq, like three times. I think I did with the Rangers, and then it was it sucked so bad, man. Just like. <laughs> At that time, it did. I mean, you know, like, hey, Ranger buddy, are those Army issue socks? Like, I remember that was just the one thing that just put me over the edge. Like, I couldn't even wear smart wool socks. You know, like, little things like that just got under my skin. And um, so I was like, well, I'm either going to get out again or I'm going to try Delta Selection. So I put in for it, and all my buddies were like, what are you putting in for Selection for? You're old. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, stand by buddy boy and a month later i came back slim and trim my pants barely fitting and off to delta i went not bragging i'm just saying <laughs> okay so um you know what uh i don't know if we touched on this or, or if, if you want to touch on it but uh you know what was it like going through selection it was awesome man. i loved it and there's books out there you know but it's just you're on your own which i love so hmm. you're walking mountains of West Virginia, Maryland, Pennsylvania, tons of map sheets, you know, in your ruck and you're carrying a lot of weight, but it's, you know, twice a year. So it's spring or fall and it's just beautiful, you know, and you're on your own and you're just, you're being tested to see what your mind is like and your heart is like. So, you know, I don't know all the inside stuff. I don't want to know. I don't even care about that. I know that you're being measured you know, your speed and, and all that over time. But I went pretty slow. I mean, I'm just, um, you know, some guys started out flying and then, you know, they're limping and I'm just walking past them at the same speed. So, but it was great. You know, there was snow and um, 
I just loved it, man. Love being alone and land navigating. Do you think that, you know, that aspect of being alone and, um, and not really knowing, you know, what, what exact time they want you to meet, do you think like that puts pressure on people and that's where some guys may flunk out? Yeah, I think so. And I think that the way you get through that was the same way I, I got through like the first 12 mile road march in the Rangers in rip. It's like, guys, we've been through, I, you know, most people, I, it seemed to me like everybody had been through hard times, but I guess not. Cause it's like, man, I've been through way harder than this in Detroit. Like I used to get chased. I was telling my buddy Ty one time I was, you know, I used to have to go to work at three in the morning downtown and, uh, I'd see like trouble up, you know, people up ahead. So my, I would just start running looking behind me, like I'm already being chased and they would leave me alone. <laughs> <laughs> so like having been through that, you know, when it's, um, like take your instructions from the chalkboard, you know, and people are like, Oh my gosh, what's next? Am I going to make it? Like, who cares, man? <laughs> right. Just, just keep going. And yeah, some people drive themselves nuts. You hear them quitting in the middle of the night. It's not easy, but like to me, that was the easiest part was the just letting go of the results. Yeah, it's it's very interesting. Like, um, uh, you know, I feel in, in in many you know avenues of life. Or um, I did a podcast with a guy who is um, he's from the Bronx. Um, not far from where I grew up. And, uh, I mean, he's a bit older than I am. And he, he spent like 30 plus years, uh, at the CIA. And one of the, he wrote a book. And then one of the things that, uh, he spoke about, like, uh, he made an, he put an emphasis on in the book was, uh, a lot of the, the, you know, potential case officers at the time that he was working in the, uh, the selection process. Mm-hmm. Um, were all people who were smart, you know, smart people. Um, you know, they wanted to serve their country, uh, so that's a you know that's a plus. But a lot of them came from sort of privileged backgrounds, yeah. and um, and hadn't dealt with adversity before getting there. So, yeah. uh, you know, he felt like it, it it makes a much better case officer if you can deal with adversity well. You know, and, right. and I guess that that's you know that's kind of what you're talking about. Yeah, adversity and then and then honesty. Like they, you know, you learn once you're there. Like we're looking for the right guy, not the best guy, um, because some people won't be honest about mistakes they made. I mean, there was like a rumor that there was a bank robber there <laughs> somewhere. You know, like oh wow, but, but he was honest about it. You know, like it didn't, you know, past the statute of limitations and all that. So it's not like he was out doing it. But I'm just saying, it's not about what you've done who you used to be it's you know who you've become and if you can own your stuff it's you know accountability you want people that are accountable so like right from the get-go they're seeing if you're that kind of person that's it's important yeah no i i agree and 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 it's it's really interesting because all the things that um you know make you successful at that right like all those sort of mental things if you apply it to anything else in life it's kind of this, it's very similar right like yeah. if you're accountable if you can deal with adversity uh i guess to some extent you know you need luck right um yeah but yeah. uh you know all of it applies it's really fascinating stuff yeah, um, yeah thanks man um and then okay so then you uh 
you go through the the sort of physical selection part, but then there, you have to go through like a training course, where, and that's where you sort of learn the the skills of like being an operator. Um, and and how how was that for, part for you? So that's a smoker. Uh, they're about the same, like selections. You know, I don't know a month or something. OTC operator training courses six months, um, but those are you know fourteen hour days and it's just nonstop. And I struggled there because I had some family struggles, you know, um, just some stuff going on. And it was funny. I struggled, and then finally, my we were trying to get pregnant. My wife got pregnant, like with like two months left in the course. So this huge stress went off of me. And then I started doing really good, but it was too late. And, you know, they had already decided. So I got, I got cut in my first OTC course and it happens, you know, to like a large, a a substantial percentage of the applicants. So these are all guys that have graduated or or, uh, been through selection, you know, been selected. And then, you know, one, two, three, four dozen of them go to OTC and, and I was one that got cut. So, but you know, when they cut you, it's some people are like, okay, we'll see you later. You go back to your unit. And some, you know, for me, they're like, we, you had really good peer reports and we like you and we want to keep you here as, you know, this other job. And I, I'd already had this backup plan. I said, can I be a dog handler? Cause at the time only operators were dog handlers. So they, the guy went away for about 10 minutes. He came back. He said, yep, you're going to go to C squadron and be a dog handler. And that's, I was, so it was like the worst, best day of my life at the same time. Mm. And it's interesting because uh, I, I spoke to a guy um, who was a, I don't remember what squadron he was in, uh, but he was an operator and a dog handler. And he kind of explained it to me like some of the squadrons do it a little differently. Yeah. Like, uh, like there's some squadrons where there's guys who, who aren't operators, uh, but they're, they're there as dog handlers. Uh, but I think what makes the unit unique is like, you know, the the guys who are there in support roles are still like highly qualified trained soldiers. Yes. You know, I, but yeah, for sure. And I saw that side of it because having not graduated OTC the first time, now I went, I went back in two years and, and smoked it and was and was drafted. You know, really highly. There's a draft just like in sports. Um, so I went back and and crushed it, but in that two years of being a dog handler, I was considered support. So, you know, it was an ego check and probably one that I needed. And, but I saw, you know, everybody there, even more so, uh, the selection, you know, uh, for support people like EOD and medics and Camo is, uh, you know, cause there's just less of a need. So they gotta be really shining in their field and they are, man, they're the best. Okay, so you know you worked as a dog handler uh, for two years, um, and and you deployed several times during that period, right? Yes, uh, uh, I think three, two or three, and a surge. It was crazy back then. I I can sort it out in my journals, but yes, I had Pepper, and then she died right at my last, well, in the middle of my last one in February of '06 my last one before I went back to OTC. So, um, yeah, that happened early February, right in the middle. And then I was going to stay, but I actually went home after that to, um, 
I don't know, do some army school and, uh, and you know, that summer went back to OTC and then spent the rest of my years on a team, which I loved. I just had the best, man, I had good luck with guys and teams and, um, it was incredible, but man, I also like just, you know, became a robot. (laughs) Mm. So it's pretty common. So when you, um, uh, you know, after that deployment, uh, that final deployment where you were a handler and, and you know, Pepper died that year, um, did you already have plans to go to the selection or OTC again? Or Yes. Yeah. So when I, when it, when that happened, when they cut me, it was the last cut, you know, there's cuts throughout. It's just like, you know, like baseball, like spring training, you get that ticket in your locker and you're like, Ugh. Um, yeah. So with us, it's, you know, if they show up in the black suburbans, when you're at the range, people start getting real quiet and murmuring and like, and you never know, man. Like, you know, the second time I knew that was <laughs> in good shape, but, um, it's funny. The second time I had, you know, I was at the, in the top per- percentage of everything like PT and shooting and, uh, the black subs came up at the end and they, they were pulling a joke at me, but I didn't know it at the time. And they said, Hey, Sergeant <laughs> Nielsen, we need you to get in the black sub. And I was like, no, uh, uh-uh, no, <laughs> I was like freaking out. And then they, they were trying to hold as long as they could. They started laughing. I was like, you mother effers, man. Like that's funny. <laughs> yeah. That was the worst. That's funny. Okay. So, um, all right. So then c- can you talk like, you know, maybe, uh, what, like what you felt some of the difference was, you know, deploying, you know, as a ranger and then deploying as a, an operator at Delta force. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> I could write a book on that. I wouldn't want to cause it's, uh, uh man, I, it's like, it's weird. I love the boys and the Rangers. You know what I mean? I don't, there's nothing against it. It's just, it seemed like there was always this balance between, you know, NCOs and officers and, you know, at times when you got the off the NCOs who are, you know, sticking up for the boys in the right way, when you have good leadership, basically, is what it comes down to. Like, Deuteronomy 20 talks about after you have done all this, taking care of the boys, then you appoint your sergeants and captains. And um, so when that happens, it's good in the Rangers. But just a lot of times, you know, like we just did that podcast on the Jessica Lynch thing. And, uh, you know, I talked about this. We had a battalion commander just walking around in shorts while we're all in mop gear. Like, can you picture that? You know what I mean? Like, I see. Yeah, like we're all near death, sweating in April 20 years ago in 03 in Nazaria, getting ready for the Jessica Lynch thing, which, of course, was overhyped. But, you know, we brought home nine American bodies that we dug up. So, but yeah, like we're in, you know, chem suits and for three days and this dude just, you know, walked by smiling. Like that's the kind of thing that just wouldn't happen in Delta, like we wouldn't be in the chem suits in the first place. You know, you have enough notice when it's coming to put on a damn pair of pants and tops. So things like that. And just <sighs> Rangers are very, very frustrating. Mm. So it's, it's basically like a, so it's interesting because the Rangers are a, um, a special operations unit. And I guess, uh, in many ways, uh, from the beginning of the the wars to the end of it, they'd really sort of moved up in, in how yeah. they're viewed and, and things like that. 
because yep. um, they've done a, a ton of work, you know, going after high value targets and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, but it, it's uh, from what I understand, it's there's still some issues like as you just described, where it's almost like big army in some ways. Mm-hmm. I guess it's it's almost got to be that way because of the size, like you know, because I was just about to say. You've got to treat people like people. And when you don't, mm-hmm. uh, things are going to break. Like I remember we were ambushed in Afghanistan. And I know the date because my sons were born on that day. Ten years later, November 19th, 2002, we were ambushed. And I put this guy, Fuji, this young little private in for an award. He's, everybody else bailed out of the of the, tru- the gun trucks. And this dude stayed in there. And fired everything he had, and like he would look up, and he's like, "What do I do?" So I'm like, "Keep shoot!" Like everybody's turtling down, and uh, anyways, I tried to put him in for an award, and this toad officer back at the talk who never left was like, "You want me to? You want to put him in a, for an award for getting shot at?" And I said, "Yes." Yeah. <laughs> like, hello. I just it like <laughs> that. that I can never be at peace with that sort of injustice, man. And that's what you, you see a lot of that, man, in the Rangers. And it's just bureaucracy, I guess. Or Yeah. And you, in the unit, man, it's like, it's on you. So like, okay, big boy, <laughs> get there. And it's like, all right, now you see everything that's wrong. I'll fix it. <laughs> right. So in a sense, you're like, ooh, you know, like you – you've got to get up early on your own and do PT and shoot and have everything wired tight, ready to go. And I found that out in OTC. That's why I failed. So. And what about like your experience um, with officers at the unit? Oh my gosh. I can't say enough good things like, and I use this a lot to talk, just talk to people about character, my sons about character, like, there were guys, not many, you know, we just aren't many overall, but the ones that were there in OTC, they go through everything with us. And, you know, I'd be like, hey, Captain Murray, where's the uh, where's the quickie saw? And he'd be like, no, it's okay, I got it on my back. I'm like, sir, take that off, man. That's my job to carry that, you know, faster open a quickie saw down 90 feet. Like, he's like, no, 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 it's already on. I don't want to take my rifle sling off and blah, blah, blah. Like, he, <laughs> you know what I mean? He just did it. And so many other things like that um, to where, like, when you see that, then I'm going to do I'm going to do my job and and then some, you know, for that guy. So. Right. So it's like leading from the front, basically, from the front, the middle of the rear, wherever they need to be. And they um, they're just aware and uh, they don't need to. It's servant leadership. They don't need to tell you they're in charge. They are. Uh, they do it by by their actions, by helping out wherever they can. And then uh, it's kind of, it's like a shame based culture, like Eastern warrior culture. You know, like don't you dare, <laughs> uh, you know, not work. Be, don't you dare be outworked or you know, um, just it, it's a shame if you know. So it, it works that way. That's why it works so well. Right. So what what you mean is like you, you see the officer, the guy in charge working, you know, 100 percent, putting 100 percent effort. So like everyone else has to match and or go beyond that, basically. Yeah. And it's it's not something um, like 
those guys had developed that character long before then. It's not something you can fake, you know, some did, you know, cause they, they of course they're going to try to help each other. They could, you know, they'll tell each other stuff like that. But over time, over the, the training and the time in there, you can't fake that it's character. You know, our lives, our characters, like a train on the tracks. It doesn't turn around quickly. So those guys are just diamonds in the rough and they're real leaders. And <laughs> I mean, I'll never forget them. Did you have any experiences, um, you know, at the unit with like bad leadership or, or that wasn't your experience? A couple of times there were, uh, more, uh, pretty removed from me just, uh, rank wise, like, um, you know, at, at my level at the teams, it's a true commander and, um, I never, never had a bad experience. Um, there, there were some who were, you know, at higher levels that were brought in and, you know, it just, it happens and they were fired like that. And that was inspiring to see, you know, a squadron commander fired cause he was just being an ass. Mm. Like it happened and it had never happened before, but you know, the unit will, th- let's, you know, think like just because it hasn't happened before, doesn't mean it can't. And it did. So. Right. And, and then seeing an action like that kind of gives you faith in, in the institution, I guess. Absolutely. Yes. Okay. So, um, uh, so when you were running dogs, you know, in a support role, um, I think you said you're a C squadron. Uh, did you return to the same squadron when you were as an operator or did you go somewhere else? I did. Yep. They drafted me right back and, um, yep. Went right in there and, um, got on a team and I pretty much knew the drill from the two years I had as a handler. So I moved up pretty quick to, uh, you know, right in the middle of the team sort of hierarchy wise. And I had to, I was a team breacher, you know, like just, I was the guy that blew up the doors, which I, love i'm 52 years old i would still love to do that today <laughs> it's great and i was i did that for many many years and i loved it and you know moved up after that but i just i love being right in the middle um okay so uh did you change jobs eventually or did you stay as a breacher most of the time i did i mean I, just the team breacher so you know i'm still like part of the team an operator and i'm still you know in the stack it's just there's the team leader, you know, and then the two IC and they got their sort of specific things. I'm the breacher at three and then four is a assistant breacher, you know, like he, so it's just, uh, duties within the team. So, um, yeah, after, I think, um, I became the, I was a dog team leader for a time back. I was kilo one, uh, for a short time just because there wasn't anybody else. So that wasn't, that's not like a real team leader, but, um, I was a two IC for a short time. And then I learned Arabic in 2010. Um, so my last combat rotation was in 09 and that was, it was still, you know, anything goes at that time. It was great. In 2010, it started winding down and I prayed, I hit my knees. I was like, they were asking for people to do Arabic. And I was like, should I do this? And it was like, yes, like (laughs) a loud yes. So I did. And, uh, Loved it. It was really hard, but I loved it. You know, got to Israel and then I, uh, then I had a, somewhere in there, I had a horseshoe malfunction, um, on a hayhoe on like a 25,000 
training jump. I had a, a horseshoe. My pilot sheet wrapped around my ankle and pulled my leg, kicked myself in the back of the head with my own foot. And oh, was shit. Like dangling upside down, at, you know, 25K. My O2 came off. My nods came off. And um, I remember like upside down, I could see the guy in the in the plane. He was His eyes were wide. And I said what I have come to call the Peter prayer, God help. <laughs> like when Peter, <laughs> when Peter's sinking in the water, help. You know, <laughs> help Lord. And, um, and then I laughed because it hurt so bad. And I, I cut away my mane and, you know, I knew like there's a chance, like, I think this, this, um, malfunction causes like 50% of the fatalities. Oh, wow. So I, I, yeah, I was dangling upside down. I was like, man, here's where, it, where it happens. Cause if your mane doesn't cut away clean, your reserve gets caught up in that. Then you just have a, a fall to your death. But said the Peter prayer cut away and my main went away. My reserve came out right as I was like about to go unconscious cause my O2 had come off. So I get some air and, um, and then, uh, my buddy was like flying circles around me under canopy. So he came down with me and we're making radio calls. And like, I thought for sure my leg had turned around like 360 degrees in the socket. I couldn't move it. So, Ooh. I landed and I, um, that hurt. <laughs> and then I jumped one more time and just to say, you know, just after that, once I could, and then I went to language, like I did Arabic and yeah. So is it, you know, jumping at that altitude, um, it, does it give you more time to sort of correct uh, a malfunction basically or yes that's a good point it does and so and i knew that and um it does but i didn't i don't know if i knew this i can't remember if i knew it you know if i don't go quick i'm gonna pass out from nowhere so um i did it quick but you're right you do have more time it's it's a lot safer than static line jumping so um the so just for the audience who may not uh, know uh, when you say when you say the O2 came off that's the oxygen so when you're jumping at a, a certain altitude you need oxygen right right at around 13,000 feet and above you need you need air that's why they pressurize civilian aircraft so when you go out at 18 or 25 or anything above you know 13 um you need oxygen and so yeah you've got a little tank on your side or two and your mask on and you need that i mean you can you go to the chamber before the hyper uh, pressure chamber to simulate what it's like so you you experience because it's different for everybody what it's like to um have oxygen depletion or whatever it's called and um so you sort of know your signs i get six my stomach and i certainly felt that so i was like oh man <laughs> I got to cut away and I feel sick. Lord help. And, yeah. Okay. Um, all right. So, uh, you know, being, uh, you know, at the tier one level, especially during those years, um, there was a ton of like uh, hostage rescue situations. Um, you know, a lot of aid workers and things like that were, were being kidnapped by different terror groups and, and stuff. Uh, do you have any experience working any hostage rescue missions? Not a ton. I'd like to say I do, but I, I don't have a ton. You know, the Ranger, the Jessica Lynch thing, which, yes, we won't get into that. But 
at the unit. Uh, I did a little bit of the, well, yeah, a lot. I just, I was never on most, you know, the ones where they finally got the person, but, uh, just, or Jill Carroll, do you remember her? She was a journalist or Mm. something. We went after her night after night after night in the cold rain. And, uh, as we're hearing like her comments, like anti-American comments, Oh yeah, we're going out looking for her. I'm just like, what's going on here? What is this? Wait, so she was like sort of anti-American before being kidnapped, or yeah, okay, I see. Yeah, it was just before and after. She's just defiant. Like I, you know, I don't know. I shouldn't. I don't know exactly, but I just remember being some weird feelings going on there. Mm. So, um, yeah, that 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 one I remember, and then I forget who got her, but it was. It was right after that rotation I was on. Um, no, I wasn't on any of the real sexy ones, so I'll just leave it at that. Hmm, okay. But, you know, it, that's an interesting dynamic. Like, you know, people can be, you know, sort of anti-American, and uh, but we'll still send, you know, our best, you know, warriors to go and, and try and get you back. Yeah, I was talking to David Hookstead last week, and, about Zarqawi AMZ, you know, at the time that was, um, gosh, it took us a while to get him. And I mean, he was all we were looking for. So while I wasn't on much hostage rescue stuff, I was certainly, you know, night after night, night we were going after, you know, the next goon of the day, the biggest guy, whoever that was, you know, we got Saddam Hussein, of course. And, you know, it was just one after another. Um, but, uh, I don't know. It was good to talk to David Hookstead because he's a journalist and he remembers Daniel Pearl who got his head cut off. Yeah. I and remember that. Yeah. Zarqawi. I remember hearing the audio in my car, man. It changed my life. Like it changed the way I went to work and, and trained myself. Cause like, I'm like, it's on dude. You don't do that. Yeah, so for the audience, Daniel Pearl, he was a he was a journalist, right? Yep. Yeah, and so he so he got kidnapped in Iraq, I believe. Yes. Okay, well, and then they. I don't know. Hold on, you know he, he was kidnapped me. somewhere, and then he ended up in Iraq. They may have moved him to Iraq for AMZ. Let me just use the power of the internet. AMZ, that is worse. I mean, he's. <laughs> okay, no, so, okay, Daniel Pearl was in Pakistan. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, but they, uh, you know, uh, Zalkawi, they, they were kidnapping people, you know, in Iraq, and, um, and I guess, you know, when, like when ISIS sort of hit the scene, they, um, you know, they're very, like, social media savvy and, and having, like, these, right. like, you know, somewhat well-produced execution videos and, like, all this crazy shit. But right. uh, Al-Qaeda in Iraq, they were doing that, uh, you know, way before ISIS, you know, yeah. probably not as sophisticated. But, you know, they were cutting people's heads off and, and selling it on, like, VHS, I guess, at, you know, at the, at the markets. So Right. Exactly. And, you know, that that's when it got... That's when it became a war because war is so much deeper than people see, you know, and it's I just want to say, man, like every every guy, every buddy I know and myself, we want World War Two. You know, we want Heartbreak Ridge. 
but you don't get that. We don't get to choose that. So we right. got what we got. And um, that, you know, seeing stuff like that, it's like, okay, because they, that's when people started to soften in America when that happened over and over. And, you know, and it's just like, no, you guys, this is when we got to really go after them harder. You know, you can't compromise with that. And it was just ridiculous. I mean, that's like, you know, and what you run that to the, to the, you know, it's final point. And it's like towards the end of my career in Afghanistan, I wasn't there, thank God, but they're sending people out in the daytime instead of night, you know, because it's bothering people. <laughs> uh, the night raids. Oh, and, oh, like people I see, like uh, bothering people who are. Yeah, the locals. You know, I get right. it. I get it. You know, it bothers us that you're housing terrorists so like but yeah i mean right. our commanders uh, theater commanders are sending our guys in the daytime and nobody wants to we only go out in the daytime if we have to and you know i i don't i'm not you know i i know there's things i don't know but um it's just i don't know man <laughs> that's not looking out for the boys yeah well i, I think um Something that is, is sort of common for guys who were, you know, fighting the war in the early and mid 2000s. And then I don't know when it changed. It might have been 10 or something yeah. like that uh, in Afghanistan, I think, where it became like instead of hitting the house where, you know, there's some terrorist leader, you have to sort of surround it and then like call it out like a like a police call out almost. And um well, we would do that. We did that early on. I mean, that was a, a um, yeah, I, that's, there's a time and place for that. I know mm-hmm. it sounds like, you know, what, but that actually worked well because, um, uh, I mean, just, you know, and then that's when they started blowing houses up. So it was, you know, and that's, that's what it is, what a war is, you know, like who's going to elevate it more and more and more and, um, but yeah, it became, uh, and then we had to go, you know, they had to go out with surrogates. And I, so I was in language at this time. I was just talking to my guys who were going out and, you know, man, like, I'm just going to tell a story. I'm not going to say any names, but, um, my good friends were out there and they, they knew they heard their Afghani, uh, surrogate guy was going to shoot him because that happened a lot. Right. The good guys, the good ones are, you know, going out with us. And they would turn on Americans and kill them. That happened several times. And our guys got word of it. And they took the firing pin out of his weapon. And they went out that night. And sure enough, old boy turns around on him and click. And nothing happened. And he gets a big punch in the face or butt stroke or whatever. And um, they saved their own lives, right? That's what they. That's why they're tier one. They saved their own lives that night. And they got fired. Really? Yeah, and I don't I don't blame our commander for that. That was the big big army like that went way up, um, and you know I don't care. I, I don't what I, I'm talking about this stuff because uh, I went through it all. Or, yeah, I didn't go through that one, but I went through enough and know enough guys that I know that this stuff needs to be talked about. And these are our treasures, man. Like. So yeah, they got they got fired for that, and you know most of them just retired. But there was a, an amazing officer there that that wasn't ready to retire. He was he was young, 
you know, like 04 type. Um, so that's on his career. That's a bad mark on his career. And that's just, you know, like, like in the Rangers, the type of thing that just, uh. Right. Yeah, that's crazy. Um, okay, so you brought up an interesting point. So you said that you guys were doing some call-outs and, and there's sort of a time and place for it. Um, uh, are you able to talk about, like, what's, what the difference may be from, like, when you guys decide, like, tactically, like, this is a, a better option to do a call-out versus, like, just assaulting the house? Yeah, I mean, the biggest deciders would be, like, if he's a bomb maker, we're going to call him out. And their bomb makers usually weren't fighters. Sometimes there would be, you know, like, guys that want to get in a gunfight. And then the other decider is if it's a hostage rescue, and which hardly ever was. But if it's that, you know, you're not going to do it. Of course, you're going to go busting in there on a hostage rescue. But... Typically, uh, a bomb maker or anybody associated with him, you're going to call him out because he's probably going to be rigged, you know, or body bombs. Um, I was telling Hookstead the other day, there was a guy dressed as a woman that, you know, we're like, man, man, turn around. And um, I was behind, I was, my team was behind another team. And this woman who was a man turned around with an AK and shot three of my buddies right in front of me. So... Uh, stuff like that. If you have intel that they might be a body bomber or, um, yeah, just pull some trash move like that. Experts say that China is hoarding a massive amount of food. They will soon have over two thirds of the globe's corn reserves and over half of its rice and over half of its wheat. But when asked about it, China lies. One China expert says that they, of course, will never admit to something like that. Well, what does China know that we don't? When it comes to global food shortages, China is the canary in the coal mine. You see, China is the world's number one importer of food. They rely on the rest of the world to keep their people fed. So they can't afford to mess up or there will be riots, civil panic, or even worse, over a billion people won't have food to eat. What does this mean for Americans like you and me? Two words, food shortages. That's why it's a smart idea to stock up on a kit of the best-selling Four Patriots survival food. Create your own stockpile of the best-selling Four Patriots survival food kits. It's hand-picked in the USA. The kits are compact and they stack easily. They have different delicious breakfasts, lunches, and dinners. And their five-star reviews on the website rave about the flavor and taste. Right now, you can get 10% off your first purchase of four patriots survival food by typing in the code recon at checkout just go to fourpatriots.com and use recon to get 10 percent off your first purchase of four patriots survival food that's fourpatriots.com use the code recon mm. and uh d- did you have instances like I- i've read about this um uh, where teams, whether it be like SEALs or, or Delta or whatever, um, or, or the Brits, where they would, you know, come on a target where they're like guys with suicide vests or like running out the house at them kind of thing. Yeah, that would that would happen now and then. And usually, you know, the few times I saw it, um, they were um, just hiding in a room. Like you when when uh, push came to shove, you know, very often just like. Bin Laden, like he wasn't, 
he didn't grab his AK and try to take someone with him. You know what I mean? He cried. And uh, sometimes they would come out. There's one story that, that comes to mind. <laughs> um, this dude uh, came out with a suicide vest, and we were actually helping another unit. I can't remember. It was a regular Army unit. So we were, like, advising them on over radio. And they're on a roof, and this guy comes out. And he's surrounded, literally, like, there's a circle around him. So we're like, um, guys, don't make a circle. That's a Polish ambush. <laughs> but um, he, they get, he goes to clack himself off, suicide vest. So we're waiting to see it because it happened, it happened a lot. And he low, it low-ordered, meaning, I don't know if you know, like, it didn't, the initiator went off, but it didn't uh, start the, the big explosives to, to explode. So he caught on fire. <laughs> right in front of him instead of blowing up. So they just shot him and the dude like was on fire for like two hours. But, um, there were a couple of times, you know, they run out at you and, um, you know, my friend Dan Briggs was, uh, absorbed a suicide bomber, like 10 yards from him. He, he ran right at him and the, the dog grabbed him and, and he clacked and the dog was vaporized and, you know, it's hard to describe, John, man, how how um, rugged the terrain is over there, uh, especially on the riverbanks. It's like, you know, thousands and thousands. This is like the cradle of civilization, and it's been farmed for thousands of years. And it's it's like walking just these bumps, <laughs> like just farm fields that I've never seen before, especially at night. So. Dan, you know, took this suicide bomber, like knocked him over or the, the pieces of the guy's body flew into my friend Dan. And he's had like 130 some surgeries. Oh, shit. Yeah. Since then, Dan, he was on the TV show SEAL Team. He's the one that got me out there for an episode. Uh, that was pretty cool. But Dan's a great guy. Yeah. Oh, wait, are you talking about... Um... Not Tyler. Okay, okay, all right. Because I, I was gonna blank that part out because um, th- there were some unit guys that I um, they were doing a, a fund had a fundraiser event uh, here in in New York City for some uh, counter sex trafficking work that they were doing. So oh. there were like all these like fancy you know Wall Street guys coming in, uh, and they gave a presentation and and they were uh, trying to get funding. So they can hire like analysts and stuff to to sort of uh, increase the operation, and they they said some things uh, uh, about people that um, kind of surprised me, like n- nothing negative, but just like names. And I was like, oh shit! Um, oh, but never mind, that's a different story. No, I hear you. It's it's weird, and it's okay to like look. I mean, let's talk about what we're talking about. You know, can we say Delta Force? I don't like there's a plaque right here on my wall that I'm looking at the unit colors, right? They gave me the unit colors. Not everybody gets them. First special forces, operational detachment, Delta. It says it right here, you know, so anybody who comes to my house can see. And yet it's just culture and it's not, it's not bad or good. So our Delta culture, we keep it quiet. That's fine. Like, you know, it's just the way it is. Uh, I, I, we work together a lot at times we, I forget what they call it, but we would send guys to them. They'd send guys to us, SEAL Team Six. So, 
Or like an, like uh, an exchange, exchange program. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, um, I mean, shit. I we had this patrol once, and I led not like leadership wise, but land navigation. <laughs> I ended up being the dude, and um, so there's like 200 of us. It's like unit seals, rangers, and like some army. And I got so lost, man. It wasn't my fault. Like. <laughs> because it, it was canals and just it took us forever to get to the target but when you're leading 200 dudes man and like i kept having to double back and i remember looking at these guys faces <laughs> you know and like i know when i'm when i'm the dude i'm on a knee that i don't want to be the guy in front you know they were cool they were like man just you'll get there we'll get there you know like and then i saw some of them dudes out in um hollywood when i went out there and watched the tv show so we were able to catch up it was it was really cool Oh, nice. Yeah. Um, do Do you have like experience, like uh, you know, on a deployment with seals or like in, in other like training scenarios with seals? No, I never. Um, I mean, just like that one I just told, and then um, seeing them here and there, and then I I did work a little bit when I first got out with some uh, what do they call them white side seals or not seal team six um, shooting. I did I did like a month of contract work and I'm like, screw this, man. This is, I hate this. <laughs> yeah. Um, but they're stout dudes, man. Like, I mean, I got great recruiting, right? So they just got this huge pool of, and you know, you'll see that in some unit guys, but you'll also see like guys who look like they work at a bank at the unit. <laughs> right. Yeah. It's crazy. Like, um, what I just mentioned where there was this sort of fundraising event, uh, here in the city with these unit guys. Um, I'd known, uh, two of them. Uh, and one of them was the guy that was like, uh, representing the sort of the organization doing the counter human trafficking work. And they had, uh, some other unit guys who lived in New York, uh, who showed up for the event. Like, I guess like after work was, you know, and um and it was down at the uh at the World Trade Center. So we were like, you know, really high up in, in one of the buildings there. And um it's so crazy. Like a lot of these guys, uh and, and they were actual bankers, which is funny, uh, but they're <laughs> they're former unit guys. But like if you if you see these guys at a bar or something, you would never guess that yeah. you know, they, they were at a a special mission unit, uh, right. you know, on all kind of combat deployments and stuff like that. It's kinda of crazy. Yeah, I think can, can you bleep part of this stuff or no? Or yeah, yeah, absolutely, yeah. Because yeah. I know she was into that and uh, Pete. Twiddell. Yeah, that, that's what I'm talking about. Yeah. Yeah, and man, I am. I'm sure you are like so behind that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Of course. Yeah, I, I mean, uh, uh, so I'll bleep that last part, but this, I'll, you know, I'll leave in. Um, yeah. But the, uh, I mean the. You know, Jeff is like, he's all tied into like that, and he does a lot of that work. And at that particular uh, event or or meeting, I guess, um, he was laying out like some of the statistics behind like the sex trafficking of like young children and stuff. And it's just mind blowing um, how bad it is. I I think uh, in the last couple of years, Law enforcement and like local law, local and federal law enforcement have um, sort of stepped up their efforts to counter it a bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then there's there's several organizations of like 
you know, veterans or like ex-intelligence officers who are specifically working that problem. But yeah, it's it's just mind blowing, you know, the, the kind of evil um, yeah. that people are into, you know. That's the war we should be fighting, and we are, but not nearly as much as we should. And Jeff, Jeff and I used to drive in together to OTC, my second one. He lived right down the street, so we drove in every morning together, man. Like we're we're mates. He's a dude, man. Yeah, he's he's a he's a cool guy. I like Jeff. Um, uh, yeah, and he does phenomenal work, uh, you know, with the the counter sex trafficking stuff. So. Yeah. And he would, he's the kind of guy, the kind of officer, you know, we talked a little bit earlier. He's the kind of guy that would say, sir, this is the, this is really stupid. Like he would just say it right <laughs> out. Like this is probably the dumbest thing I've ever seen. Like to the point where you're like, Hey boss, don't get in trouble, man. <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs> but he had, he had walked up the terrain and knew what he could do. And like guys respect him for that. And so. Yeah. Yeah. He's a, he's a great guy. Um, uh, I've had him on my podcast, I think, twice. And then nice. um, he, so I think he is now the CEO of uh, All Things Possible. Mm. So they, it's like uh, they are Christian based. Yep. And uh, and they they have like a sort of, I don't fully understand it, but they have like a sort of church kind of religion sort of aspect to what they do. And then they have the counter trafficking work. Um, and uh, so he I think he's now the CEO. OK. Uh, but the the guy who started it is a he was a ex-Marine and his name is Victor Marks. And he also has a podcast. I, I went on his podcast before. But oh, cool. Uh, yeah, they, they do phenomenal work. Um Good. Yeah, they're they're employing the skills that we learned to track bad guys. Yeah. And that's yeah. I just love that so much. <laughs> yeah, and it's like, you know, the 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 folks who are like trafficking young girls, you know, like like these guys are just fucking losers, right? Like yeah. uh and and they're not you know, like even though like, you know, some of the guys that you were going after in Afghanistan, Iraq, whatever, like you know they're major scumbags, right? But all right. Um, no, this is a whole new level, man. Yeah, and it's just it's unbelievable. And but you know you you bring the skills of you know analysts who are at the CIA or or at you know some level some special operations level, JSOC, SOCOM, or whatever, and you bring those skill sets to finding guys who are trafficking young girls. It's like those dudes don't stand a chance, you know. Um, right. And this so won't make sense to everyone, but like the what what I'm doing now with this podcast, you know, Jesus at the center is um, just getting to the trying to get to the heart, you know. Um, I don't know. Before that happens, I you know I don't know because that's to me that's always just been the worst, absolute worst evil in the world is you know yeah uh, people that child molesters who doesn't agree with that everybody in our crowd does, but apparently. You know, people support NAFTA. I mean, I'm aging myself, but or NAB, NABLA, what is it? NAMBLA. Just no. like, there's like actual entities that support, um, uh, I mean, there's politicians that support minor, minor attracted people, right? Yeah. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> we have people in power supporting that. 
It's it's crazy. Let's start there. <laughs> okay, let's. Uh, we kind of went off on a tangent. Let's. Uh, we did. <laughs> <laughs> let's rewind a little bit. So, uh, you know, doing the uh, the uh, the dog handling. Um, you know, obviously, we spoke about this on the two times you're on the podcast, the situation where Pepper died, and um, uh, you were in an, an HBO documentary uh, focusing on, on dog handlers. I think it was specifically special operations dog handlers. Yep. Um, and, and that was difficult, uh, difficult situation for you to, you know, to deal with after, like right after and then even down the line. Um, yeah. But can we talk about, like, you know what you saw as a handler in terms of like the the positives of um, you know ha- running dogs with a special operations unit. Yeah, um, I mean, I can't think of a better idea or implementation or uh, tactic. <laughs> you know, anything as good other you know since night vision or like the rifle because. I mean, man's best friend, like they just should have been with us all along. And it's the coolest thing in the world. People didn't think we could do CQB with dogs until we did it. And it wasn't easy. I wasn't there at the beginning, um, but I pretty close to it, you know, and um, it wasn't flawless. Sometimes it was ugly, but, um, you know, when Pepper died, we thought we were, well, we were going after AMZ and there was one squirter. We flew there. There was no squirters. We flew home and, you know, it was a five minute little bird flight. So right when we, before we even touched down, they said, Hey, come back. There's a squirter. So he, uh, pilot turned around, you know, and this guy, like I said earlier, the terrain is indescribably tough and thick and unpredictable and difficult. And he was in, he had a, a spider hole, like a old, you know, style hole made, um, on the bank of the Tigris River for escape. There was no way to get to this guy. I'm not kidding. We shot rockets, grenades, machine gun, everything we had at him. We couldn't drop a bomb because there were houses nearby. So perfect situation for a dog. And, um, you know, she, she went once, she went twice. Um, but that's why you have them. And I mean, people, yeah, I mean, that's it. And so many other situations, like the classic one is, you know, the squirter running away and you send the dog right, right then. Um, I, I got a couple of those, but not too often, you know, and they just, they just, God, they're fast, man. I mean, Pepper weighed 52 pounds, 52 pounds, and she could fight a 200 pound dude. A couple dudes. Yeah, it's crazy. Yeah, some dudes would fight the dog. Like most of them, just lay down and scream. That's probably what I would do. (laughs) I don't know, but a couple dudes, man, like fought. You know, and some of the male dogs. I mean, it is a brawl. Like, you know, (laughs) and then finally the dog. You know, I just remember watching Rudy fight this guy that looked like Bluto from Popeye, and me. It's like, (laughs) oh my god, he's he's fighting him back, and you can't do anything at that point. They're spinning around everything, and like. It looks like Bluto's going to like slam Rudy. Uh, and then he's just like, oh, he just gives up. And he's like, please, you know, dog, dog, make pain. Like, yep, that's, <laughs> that's dog's job. 
already. So were you were you mainly like using them sort of like going after squirters or they're using like all kind of scenarios? Yeah, I mean, uh, um, an operator with a dog is is going to be is going to have the dog inside the house doing CQB or you know call out like everybody you call everybody out and then you send the dog in right to see if it's a trap. Um, and then uh, the bomb sniffer dog. That's the the difficulty is of a you know do you train a dog one way or the other because they are they're driven. It's like somebody driven to learn computers. You're not you could you could make them into a ranger or like a you know an infantryman. It's just not going to work as well. So you wanna you wanna go to somebody's drive and dogs are the same. So you find their drive, and if you know if it's a certain thing, then they're going to be a good bomb dog. Like their play drive, some dogs just will. All they care about is a tennis ball. And uh, Pepper, all she she loved a tennis ball, but when she saw a bite suit, she cared about that more. She, right. Yeah. So that was her thing. So, um, but yeah, there's handlers, uh, you know, um, support handlers who would have a dog. That was, uh, you know, a bomb sniffing dog. We actually have a, a, a guy named here named Doug, a dog. I call him a guy, but Doug, he's a Labrador. So he, he was at the unit. He retired with my wife, Laura. She was a vet tech there for nine years, the same time I was there. Mm. Doug, so Doug's a floppier Labrador, single purpose, um, you know, bomb sniffing dog. He never deployed, but um, you know, just trying to find, you know, that, that sweet spot of, um, because a lot of dogs, when you're trying to get them to sniff for a bomb, and they, if there's, you know, detainees around or or bodies, like, they want to bite. So I see. It's hard to yeah, make them do what they don't want to do. Right. Okay. And uh, so did you, you met your wife at the unit, or you met her after? I did. Uh, she got there just shortly after me, and she was the first vet tech to be there. Um, as the canine program became legitimate, you know, they hired a vet right, right after, right when I got there, a vet and a vet tech. And so Laura, she's my wife, Laura Miller, she retired right after me and we met there. We were friends. Um, you know, we were both just in other relationships, but we were just always friends. And then we both, um, found each other after, you know, single. And uh, we've been together for nine years now. Nice. That's yeah. awesome. Yeah. Man, she's, yeah, she just saved my life, really. Like, because she knew I got so lucky. God, I mean, God put us together. Like, I needed somebody to give me the space to mess up, but also, you know, tell me, hey, you're messing up. <laughs> right. It's really hard. So do you think... Because, you know, as you, you mentioned before, and obviously we spoke about it in some detail on previous podcasts, but, um, you know, you had some difficulty with your with your exiting the Army. Um, yeah. Do you think it helped having her who sort of understood, you know, to some degree what you were dealing with? Yeah, um, it did. and But it also came to a point where, she, where man... Where it's like she's not gonna put up with any more shit, you know. Mm. And I had I had to realize, and I had to. I'll never forget. Like I just came, like sort of, uh, 
you know, ass bumping down the stair like a kid coming down the stairs that doesn't want to see their parents. I was just in pain because like my sons had just gone back to their mom and yeah, after they'd been taken away and it hurt so bad. And, um, me and Laura were fighting and it's like, I just had to say like, Hey, I'm wrong. I, I have been mean and nasty and I'm wrong. And I, I had to do it in a way that I'd never done it, I guess. And, uh, I did. And that was the beginning of getting my life back. Hmm. And and that's hard to do, right? Like to do something, like admit that you're wrong, right? But um, yeah, yeah, it's because it's an identity issue, you know. Yeah, yeah. Like, who am I? I'm not. <laughs> you know, yeah. Who am I becoming? Like, and that's why I. Uh, that's why I do what I do. I mean, I know I keep saying it, but like. Um, Every time I needed God and, you know, the Peter prayer, like, help God, <laughs> um, he was there. And then just and now it's become real. Uh, and and watching Laura, she was never she's from Nebraska, man. She's like, you know, a little bit of Catholic upbringing, but she wanted nothing to do with it. And I just said, if we don't each know Jesus, it's not going to work. And so she just stepped out on her own and. and uh tried and had friends talk to her and um watching her go through it i guess is what i'm saying is has been the coolest thing um in my adult life to watch her yeah just come to uh she's happy she wasn't happy either like she you know she retired and and grown men delta operators cried because she was retiring and she because she had given it all and and been accepted there you know for nine years it's true. Like you got to bring it every day. You can't coast. And, right. and she, I mean, she went over and picked up Aaron Grider's body, our mutual friend who was killed and to get it, she went over to get his dog, but like, she, you know, she's flying on the plane home with his casket. And, uh, I think Bodie was his dog. And so she went over to just help with the dog, but you know, she's seen some stuff like that. And, um, so man, yeah, we got to become who we're going to become, you know. Yeah. Okay, so let's uh let's change gears a little bit. So, uh when you went to Israel, uh did you go to Jericho? No. I didn't and I certainly wanted to. Is that in the West Bank? Yeah, that that's like near the Dead Sea, yeah. Did you have to go like through checkpoints? Uh, yes. Uh, wait, did I go to a, to a checkpoint? Well, it's, it's, uh, yes, yeah, 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 because it's, uh, administered by the, I guess, the Palestinian Authority, I think. Yeah, I wasn't allowed to do that. I went to Jordan, but we had to stay out of the West Bank and Gaza, of course, but, um, mm. that must have been a little scary. No, I mean, um, it, it was cool. Like, it wasn't like, uh, you know, like there weren't like, guys with machine guns like checking everything you know like it, it was kind of cool to be honest um mm-hmm. uh but it was super hot and um yeah like incre- like I, I i drank like four bottles of water in like a 15 minute just being outside for like because like, you can um you can see the walls of jericho you know like from spoken about in the bible and stuff yeah. like that and and um i mean they're, they're obviously not 
in in tip top shape, but uh, you can still take a little tour and, and kind of see them. And uh, but I, I it was super hot, and uh, there was a I, on my little tour group. There was this guy who who lived in Vegas, and uh, he kept talking about how the heat wasn't that bad, and in Vegas it's like it's hotter and all this shit. And in my head, I'm just like, shut the fuck up, right? And uh, <laughs> and then like five minutes into the tour, he had to tap out and go back inside. <laughs> it's like, I love it. That's justice. Yeah, see you there, Vegas. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I love um, it. Yeah, but it, and and I'm not like I'm not a religious person, um, but like my my family are mainly Catholic, mm. um, and. Uh, and it's just fascinating stuff to see all these places and you know that are so relevant to um you know the world and they've it's been relevant for thousands of years right um, yeah do you have any pictures of jericho i'd love to see yeah yeah i do i do man if you could send me something that would be, i'm just fascinated by that too we went to daniel's tomb in kirkuk you know it's just a you know a spot like this is where Daniel's tomb is supposedly, but right. Jeru- Jerusalem's what just got me, man. I don't know about you, but like, oh yeah, yeah. Phew. Did you go to the Garden Tomb? Uh, the Garden Tomb. What, what is that exactly? It's in Jerusalem, but it's outside the walls, so it's like a mile and a half up. It's just in this like Palestinian neighborhood. Uh, oh, is that a- like uh, Mount Mount of Olives, or no? It's the other way from that. It's on the other side of Jerusalem. It's just it's like buy a bus station and you'd miss it if you're not looking for it. But it's, it's one of the, you know, spots where Jesus's tomb, it was either there or, you know, in the Kenisa del Kayama, the big church in Jerusalem. Mm-hmm. So it's just an, an alternative tomb site, but that was my favorite. I see. No, I, I, um, I, I, I was on, uh, I went to the Mount of Olives and I, I, like, you can take like a taxi or a tour bus or whatever, but yeah. uh, I ended up just walking and, um, and I was following the GPS and like, I can see like, when I got to the top of the hill, there were like tour buses to the right, but uh-huh. the GPS was telling me to go left and then like around. Hmm. So I ended up following it and like for 10 minutes, I'm like, like, I'm like in the middle of this like Palestinian neighborhood <laughs> and, um. Uh, and I'm like, I don't think this is the place. And then so like, uh, you know, I had like my camera out and like I have tattoos and like uh, these these sort of Palestinian boys, like they were like playing, you know, on their bikes or like, I don't know if they had like a stick and a ball or something, but they seemed like interested in me, you know, uh-huh. I guess I'm not like the typical guy around there. And, yeah, um, those so- people are street smart. Yeah. Yeah, so then I so I asked them like, "Where's the Mount of Olives?" and uh, and they they kind of start giggling and <laughs> um, and then they tell me like, "You're on the Mount of Olives." I'm like, "Oh, oh but man. so I'm like, but I mean like the you know, like where do people go to like you know look at things and and they kind of directed me back towards the other direction, um, and then I don't know it was a few nights a few days later, I had breakfast with a. A friend of mine who is a ex-Israeli special forces guy in, in, in Tel Aviv, hmm. and what he was telling me was uh, like it's sort of a it was a good thing that you know like I, they can't look at me and think I'm Jewish right like a white Jewish guy or something yeah 
Yeah. Because that that there's been instances where people have made like wrong turns and ended up in like a Palestinian neighborhood and like people died or like yep. became like an incident or something, you know. Yeah, I was very careful, but I remember one time Oh, and I took it. Yeah, never mind. Um yeah, I was like uh walking somewhere and this 12-year-old boy or this boy was just following me along and he's like Money, money. You know, we we're having fun because I was, you know, speaking Arabic with him and stuff. And then he's like, "Give me some money." And I said, "I told you no already." And he kept going and going. And then I'm like, "Bro, I'm not giving you money." He goes, "Fuck you!" <laughs> After talking Arabic, and I just started laughing because what are you gonna do? Yeah. But there yeah, were some the, good uh... moments too. The I stayed at the American something. This hotel, it was it was wonderful, and it was within per diem, the American something or other, but it was run by Palestinians, and they would help me with my Arabic, so I had a good experience in Jerusalem. Yeah, yeah. Overall, it was it was a great experience. Um, I I spent, I think, four nights total in Jerusalem, uh, two nights just outside the old city, and then I spent two nights in the old city, uh, which wow. was. Yeah, it was kind of a cool experience, um, but I, I'm trying to remember. I think where I stayed was like the border between the the Christian section uh-huh. and the Muslim section. Yeah. Uh, but the hotel was like Muslim run. Uh huh. Um, and uh, and I was there with my ex-wife and like two. In order to stay in a room, yep. like man and woman, you ha- like we had to show them our marriage certificate, which is pretty crazy. Yes, I was going to say I had a. That's part of why I was divorced again, is I had an Israeli girlfriend when I was over there, and yeah, we tried to stay there, and I saw that, and I was like, let's just get out of here. Yeah, <laughs> you're a Jew. Yeah. I'm a Christian. Let's leave. Yeah. How did you feel there? Did you? I mean, do you have any moments where it was just like, like just deep? Yeah, no, definitely. Um, uh, you know, visiting the uh, the church there in Jerusalem. Um, uh, you know, when, when you walk in, they have this uh, stone slab kind of in the front, and you know, yeah. according to everything, that's the slab where they they put when Jesus was taken off the the uh, cross they put his body on this slab and mm-hmm. I guess prepared it for a burial or something and um, so uh, my grandparents are pretty religious um, and they you know they're like the kind of folks who like you know for 50 years they went to church almost every single weekend and like were members of the church and that kind of thing yeah um, so I bought like uh, rosary beads and stuff from the uh the Arab Christians who've been there for mm. a long time, right? Yeah. And I had, you know, I had everything blessed and and all that, and um, uh, you know, I visited the rest, the Western Wall, and mm. uh, you know, wrote some things for, you know, look after my family and stuff like that, and and I, I did feel like, uh, not necessarily emotional, but I just felt like, wow, like you know. Uh, mm. You know, I'm here in, in this place where that's been such a sort of important yeah. aspect of humanity for so long. Um, yeah. You know, I, I got to visit uh, Bethlehem and, and stuff like that, so it's pretty cool. 
Oh, cool. Yeah, that was in definitely in the West Bank. Bethlehem, yeah. And I didn't get to go there, but... Jordan, did you go to Petra, or...? I did. Um, I went to... Uh, so we... I, I booked it through an Israeli tour company, so, like, they drive you to... Uh, to uh, to the border where where uh, Aqaba is, uh-huh. um, right Aqaba, on the Red yeah. Sea, and Elad so Aqaba, yeah, yep, yeah. So right, so the Israeli side is a lot, yep. and uh, you get off the bus, you go through the border, the uh, sort of immigration checkpoint, and um, another company picks you up uh, on the on the Jordanian side, and. We stayed in we stayed in Aqaba for a couple of hours, like we had lunch, and then uh, we went to Wadi Rum, uh, which was my favorite part of Jordan, and uh, it was like a little, it's almost like a resort, kind of in the desert, uh-huh. and um, so we stayed there for a few nights. Um, I really got to see uh, at night um, the the Milky Way, and I I, I had like mm. all my camera gear, and I, I took some nice photos of the stars and stuff, and and then yeah, we did a day at Petra. I was supposed to do a night there, um, but I after spending a couple of hours like in the uh, I don't know what they would call it uh, in Petra, um, I felt like. More than a day there, I, I didn't think it was worth it. Like I, yeah. I would rather have uh, spent another night in in Wadi Rum in the desert. So that's what I ended up doing. But yeah, Perpetual was cool too. You know, to yeah. walk through all of that and and see uh, all these these sort of tribal uh, Bedouins and stuff like that it was pretty cool. Yeah, yeah. I tried to go back there a couple times once was right before COVID. I was like, we're getting ready to buy tickets and, and COVID came and we hadn't. So thank goodness. But, um, yeah, I'd love to go back one day. Yeah. I mean, I, I definitely want to go back, um, you know, and see some other things and stuff like that. But yeah, it, it was definitely a cool experience. Um, so what, uh, you know, what, what made you decide like you know, at what point did you decide you're gonna go the theology route? Um, well, I felt called. Like I didn't know what it was that was calling me. Like um, when I went back in the army, I was I had started to get on a plant uh, course to become a chaplain, but I lost my patience. Like after 9/11, I'm like, just put me back in there. I'll be a chaplain, you know, with machine gunner. <laughs> um, <laughs> I just couldn't wait. And so it was always like, you know, God's like, okay, like Jonah, you can run, but you know, I gotcha. And so I got out and, um, my sister said, did you ever think about going back to school? And I said, did you ever think about serving your country? (laughs) Cause she's like married to a Stanford professor and they're all intellectual and shit. And I just, I'm like, wow, that was mean. I can't believe I just said that. (laughs) <laughs> so I thought about that for a few months and I was like, she's right. You know, I liked school and I had been an English major. So I just, man, I'm going to do it. I'm going to commit and study the Bible because I love it and I love God. And so I did and was good at that. Loved it. Um, you know, and then just like coaching and every, I love football coaching. Um, 
and then my friend Ty, when, when we met like three years ago, he, he told me shortly after, or at some point he's like, God told me, <laughs> he, that should be his, his name. God told me cause God literally, I mean, and I've no, I, I know that, you know, it's the real deal. Cause I watch him, but it's like, God told me we're going to work together sometime. Not now, but mm. sometime here we are three years later since January, we've been going at this and nice. Yeah, it's, it's such a, like, peace is so underrated, man. I've just found peace in the last year or two, and it's, John, it's the best, man. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. And I only get there by doing what, where God wants. Like, man, I got a, a friend who's dying, uh, stage four cancer. He was a, a, a mortician in the army. Mm. So like he worked at Dover and he saw, he, I'm like, you know, Ben Stevenson. Yep. You know, Lance Cornett, like all my friends who died, he's like, yeah, I'd, my buddy worked on him. Like he was there and he put so many people back together that were blown to shreds, you know, and, um, long story, but this, this guy's dying and he's up in West Virginia. So me and Ty are going up there Monday to like baptize him. Cause he's at this church and they're like, if let us know when you quit smoking, we'll baptize you. We're like, Mm. that's bullshit man. Yeah. we'll see you Monday we'll go to a creek and I'll hold your cigarette we'll tie baptize you so <laughs> like that's the kind of stuff God you know has got me doing and it's it's I'm at peace more than peace I'm, I have joy that's awesome yeah um, and uh, so what like what made you guys want to do a podcast in particular I don't know Ty what made us want to do a podcast we want to reach people. Um, we've got this thing in Sierra Leone going as well. Well, Ty does like, so Ty, man, he's, his family has a church and they, he just, he's humble. And, um, this, this huge mega church around here had, had built this church in Sierra Leone. Okay, cool. And then they just like left them alone <laughs> and go from there. So this pastor, of this church in Africa found Ty on Facebook and reached out to him and then me and Ty, so we started talking to them and we did something last weekend, a conference. And then now this, this mega church pastor is just coming back. Like, hey, what are you guys doing? You know, we started that church and it's like, you know, like we're the little guys, we're tiny little guys doing massive work for God. One just, you know, as he shows us. And it's, um, so I guess the podcast is like, just makes sense. Um, yeah. For me, it's like, I started to say, so I've got these war journals and, um, you know, there's, there's scripture that says what, what the boss went away basically. And he left, he left you with five bags of gold. What did you, and he, when he comes back in a year, did you make more out of that? Hmm. And I'm not, if they're in a box, you know, and it's not about money. It's about, um, people. So, you know, like if I can get that shit out of the box and talk about it and start, and I'm talking to you about Jeff Teagues now, like me and Jeff used to, I mean, talk about everything right into work mm -hmm. and he's doing sexual trafficking work. Like, that's awesome, man. I want to get back in touch with him. And, um, you know, when I don't, when I keep my shit in the box, it's I mean, it says enough right there. Like, so it's just, it's got to come out. So podcast, man, let's talk about it. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, and, and uh, Jeff is, you know, he's he's real big on his faith and Christianity, and and um, and they have a whole like big thing going on over there at uh, All Things Possible. So I, you, there's probably a ton of stuff you guys could could do there. I, I think that would be pretty awesome. I'm a, yeah, I'll get him on my podcast. I wrote I wrote that down, All Things Possible, and I'll, I got his, I just looked up his contact info. I still got it. So, um, yeah, you know, and it's, it, the cool thing is like I don't. It's not like I have the uh, I have the answer, but I know who does, you know, and I know people, I know you say the name Jesus and it, it's a screeching halt, like, <laughs> but that's yeah, for it, a reason. You know, it's so interesting, like, um, like, I'm, I'm not a particularly religious person, but, but I respect people and, and their beliefs, right? Like, yeah. like, I have some friends who are like, uh, you know, they, they go to church and they, you know, their family is very big on it. And, and you know, they, their kids are baptized and, and that kind of thing. And then I have some friends who are like uh, not religious, but kind of cool about it. And then I have friends who are like sort of in a way anti-religion, right? Yeah. And, um, and just as I got older, like I was never anti-religion or anything like that. But as I got older, like... And, and you know you get more life experience and and um, you know me in particular like I've been to many different places around the world and I pay attention to things that are happening and uh, it, it's it's almost weird how there's like a like it's almost uh, in the West it's like it's okay to bash on like Christians and, and Catholics right yeah. um, and it, it's people look at it and say and have all these negative things to say about religion but when you when you look at uh history and and places where religion was sort of implemented and uh you know it, it brought down the crime and and yeah. it it made things better and like there's nothing wrong with that you know and, and that's actually a good thing so like i i really don't understand like the, some of the sort of Christ, Christianity bashing that goes on in this country, you know? Right, and we've got a guy who's a, kind of our third guy, Patrick McCormick, who's a Catholic. He lives in Chicago, and he used to have a podcast, but, um, you know, it's sort of in vogue now to really bash Catholics, especially for, you know, evangelical Christians. But, like, they're, mm. they're, they've been around for a long time, and they're, you know, they know what they did wrong, and they're fixing it, and uh, they've had a lot to offer like they know how to meditate Christ, you know uh, on scripture and that's that's huge so we've yeah. all got to help each other out man yeah seriously and and I, I just uh, you know like just I listen to podcasts and I read articles and I'm, I'm doing like all this stuff where I'm just still learning all the time and um, you know even like I, I've I've gotten into meditation and breath work um mm. And one thing that's really fascinating about it is your your heart rate and your and how you breathe. It's similar from if if you're just having like a meditation practice, or if you're praying, like for the way a Christian prays, right? Like uh, or the way a Muslim prays, or something like. So th there's something that sort of connects these sort of spiritual spiritual aspects of, of what humans do, and and I think it's it's very fascinating. Yeah, the unseen is is real, 
and um, yeah, I mean, our lives are just, it's, we're, we're all answering the question who God is, right? Through our lives. We're, that's the unavoidable, unavoidable question. Yeah. Okay, so um, if uh, if folks are interested in, in uh, checking you out, uh, you know, listening to your podcast and all that, where can they do all that stuff? It's called the Christology Podcast, and it's everywhere. I mean, it's launched everywhere. You know, I've, I've seen. I've just learned about this, obviously, but it's you know, I've seen it on um, Apple, Spotify, all that stuff. So. You can find it uh, Instagram, Christology Podcast on Instagram. Um, what else? That's that's a big deal for me. For now, I never thought I'd be on Instagram. Man, it's been about a month, and I'm yeah. <laughs> hey, John, how do you? I saw on your somewhere on something of yours where you credited the music on a podcast on Apple. Mm-hmm. Do you remember how you did that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I can tell you how to do all that stuff. That and how to get thousands of followers. Can you let me know? <laughs> <laughs> you already helped, man, so much with Instagram. That was like, that was fun to watch. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and I mean, we can, you know, we can talk offline, but, um, like, any questions you guys have or any help you need, like, just, okay. just, you know, consider it done, you know, before you even ask. So. Oh, thank you, man. That's so cool. Yeah. Thank you, thank you. Hey, one other thing. I, so, I don't think you're a hockey fan, but if you had to be, would it be the Islanders or the Rangers? Oh, the Ra- no, no, no. I, I mean, like I used to, I used to skate when I was younger. Oh, cool. Um, and my uh, my brother's a huge Ranger fan. My uncles are all New Jersey Devil fans because they're from New Jersey. <laughs> yeah. um, the Islanders. It's like a thing in New York, and maybe I'll get some shit for this, but it's like the. Uh, <laughs> The Jets, the Mets, <laughs> and the Islanders. The Outcasts, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And they have like the, the the Mets and the Islanders have like similar colors. Yeah. Um orange and blue or something. Yeah, right, right. Uh but yeah, definitely the Rangers. Right on. They are good this year. That the Rangers scared the crap because I like the Her- Carolina Hurricanes. I'm from Detroit. Red Wings are my team forever, mm-hmm. but like I've just picking up with the Carolina Hurricanes and we're getting beat up by the Islanders. We're winning, but they're just beat. They're, we're going to lose. We're not going to have enough guys oh, the, to play. <laughs> the playoffs are happening now, right? Yeah, they started this week. Mm. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, there's a game there tonight. Carolina's up in New York tonight. but um, Oh, nice. Mm. Yeah. Well, man, it's so good to reconnect. And um, anytime, like if you need to fill something in or whatever, you know, you need, just let me know. I can... I'm here for you, brother. You've done so much for me. I appreciate it so much. Yeah, no, I, and same to you. Um, you know, any way I can help, man, just consider it a yes before you even ask me. So, oh, that means a lot, brother. Yeah.